we've all seen strategy docs and we've all done them where they just sit on the shelf behind me or wherever or on someone's powerpoint deck and the hard work is actually then in implementation saying what's going to happen next and the sort of things that matter are therefore where does the money go is it changing direction is it going to certain things that it might not have done before and also communicating this sort of framework for how we want to think about all the activity we're doing and what we're trying to achieve and a bit of a roadshow around that as well so that's the sort of stuff that then started immediately after to make things come to life but Welcome back to the Web Chats podcast, a podcast from White and Black Limited. My name is Sam Ridgway. Thank you as ever for taking the time to listen to today's episode. We've got something a little bit different in this episode and we are going into the world of sport. And my guest today is Mahir Walti. Mahir is Chief Strategy Officer for World Rugby, the sport's international governing body. And as Mahir will discuss shortly... He has had a really varied career, originally an economist and management consultant. Mahir joined World Rugby from global advising network Mullen Lowe Group. And prior to this, Mahir was Director of Strategy and Research at Sport England, where with the help of his team, he introduced new insights and tools to the sector, which helped boost sports participation by over 700,000 adults, which was actually the first ever recorded increase. And Mahir also spent time as head of strategy at BBC Sport, where he worked on rights and and genre strategy. And he has also been deputy chair of Sporting Equals, which is the body responsible for racial inclusion in UK sport. Mahir has a degree in economics from Cambridge University and was the gold medalist on the SDA Pocones MBA programme. So I think it's safe to say Mahir is a man in the know when it comes to designing and implementing executing strategy and of course this podcast is all about trying to tap into the expertise and the experiences of our guests in order to learn something to take something away that will be of use in our own business context so with that in mind i spent time asking me here how you go about building a strategy for a brand a product a whole sport in rugby's case with with millions and millions of stakeholders different forms a global audience where does one start with a strategy with building that strategy how do you communicate it and and receive feedback without alienating people but but also without having hundreds of different opinions diluting what you're trying to achieve so i spent time talking to mahir about that and then we moved on to to discuss stakeholder engagement so beyond strategy at what point should stakeholders be considered how involved should they be and how once they are engaged do you get them on board with change and and really begin moving that strategy forward and implementing it day to day so a really interesting episode whether you're a rugby fan or a sports fan or not there is plenty of parallels to be drawn and what i think to be some really useful insight i started out then by asking Mahir how he came to be in the role he is in today often when i'm recruiting or interviewing people for roles at world rugby a lot of people come to us who've been you know sports in their blood and in their background and i'm not one of those people so i grew up in a very non-sporty family parents both worked from the age of 15 never really got into sports can't ride a bike don't swim you know none of that at all so quite you know distinct to i'd say the majority of people who work in the sports industry i have got into it almost by accident i'd say but then made a career out of it over the last 20 years or so so i originally started off if we go through the different phases of my career i originally started off having studied economics i went in to work for a startup consultancy doing economics consultancy forecasting that sort of stuff i was employee number four the firm had just moved out of the boss's basement so that was quite fun <laughs> one in the morning you're filling up the photocopier 
you know, do all the spreadsheets and stuff. And in the afternoon, you present it to clients. So you get to see the whole business run from start to finish. And that, I think that sort of humility and willing to, willingness to muck in probably stays with you as well, which is, which is no bad thing. I was there for a couple of years and then went to business school to broaden out from economics, did an MBA out at school called SDA Bocconi in Milan, in Italy, had a fun year and a half out there, and then came back to the UK to join what was Arthur Anderson, now Deloitte's, in their strategy consulting team, and worked on a range of clients, particularly in education sector, in the media sector. And whilst I was there, um, an ad came up in the Sunday Times for a role as a strategy manager at the BBC, thought that'd be fun. Yeah, it'd be mm. quite a sexy job to have. So I went for that. And I think the sheer enthusiasm uh, and excitement of being in broadcasting house got me an interview and got me got me through the door and got me a got me a role there where I was there at the BBC for about five years, initially working in the corporate centre, worked on the launch of what was then called moving on from ITV digital into into Freeview, which is still going strong and was the fastest growing technology of all time when it when we launched it back you know nearly 20 years ago then had a spell from there my first sort of spell in sports was then moving over to be not just in the strategy team at the corporate hq which is sort of a right hand man and woman of a director general for the organization to then becoming head of strategy at uh, bbc sport so we had a central team but also had specialists working in different bits of the business be it sport radio digital and new media, et cetera, et cetera. Had a great couple of years at BBC Sports, having grown up, I'd say not in a sporty family, but certainly grown up watching a lot of grandstand and sports personality of the year to actually be on the other side, helping make decisions about which rights we could afford, which rights we could invest in, how we make BBC Sport move into a world where it's increasing competition on all all platforms and all spheres, into a world where it can carve out a niche where it seems value for money and sensible, was was quite a challenge, but something that you know I really embraced and worked with the um, respected directors of sport to shape how we move into the digital age, particularly you know going into multi-platform and and broadcasting, you know for example. 2004 Olympics and beyond into multiple aspects so you could showcase different different sports at different times in a way that those sort of multi-game multi-sport games hadn't been done before also worked on the launch of Sport Relief at the time which was great fun as well and set up our own sort of business unit which still is going strong sort of how we work with grassroots sports to help inspire people because that's part of them obviously benefit of having free-to-air television broadcasting sport as well. So I was there for five years. As often is the case, a restructure was happening. It was either going to be a promotion or possibly losing a role. So I started looking around. Ended up being a promotion, but in the meantime, also stumbled across a role at an organisation called Sport England, who are the grassroots body for participation in, in England. They cover the sort of young people and, and adult participation. It's not schools and not the elite end, which UK sport do, but a bit in the middle. And it was a very similar role. So having done strategy roles at, at, at the BBC, it was, a, it was a director of policy and performance, moved into more strategy and research type roles. So very much the same sort of thing, you know, understanding data, understanding your stakeholders, pulling all that together into cohesive evidence-based insight, which again can drive your decision-making. Really challenging time there at Sport England. They were very much seen as uh, a naughty child by the government and the government department that sponsored them, DCMS, but played a big role in trying to showcase and illustrate their value add and what they were doing for sport overall. And they've gone from strength to strength since. And in a way, you know, very simple business model, Sport England get around 250, 300 million pounds a year of tax money and lottery money, and it's spend it on people Taking part in sport, what a great, great job to do. But as you can imagine, there's a lot of politics involved with that as well. And you had great success there. Was it something like was it something like seven hundred thousand new participants, something like that? I read somewhere. Where, yeah, it was it your tenure there? Mahir? Absolutely, and I would, I would, I would, I'd love to say credit. That, but. I'd love to say credit personally for that, but it's obviously a team, very much a team effort. So 
It was around the time running up to the 2012 games, so it was it was a very exciting time for for sport in in the UK generally. And what's been interesting is that historically, you know, sports participation has been on a decline across the country. It's been you know in, in pretty much all groups, and this was a first recorded increase. And it was done for a number of different things. Firstly, real targeting of different audience groups and also applying as much money as possible into stimulating local activity because a lot of you know that 250 300 million pounds a year is a lot but most sports spend is done by local councils or by the private sectors how do we stimulate that to keep investing and keep generating activity so yes that did lead to an increase in participation which is the first recorded one and and, and then we saw that sort of move on again post the 2012 games as well as that generating more excitement there's definitely the thing in sport that people believe that if you broadcast it, put it on, that's going to stimulate activity in itself, in its own right. I think that plays a role, but I think what we also saw in the evidence is that the number one thing that drives particularly young people to take part in sport and then build habits is what their friends, their family do. And that's what stimulates things and, and keeps things going. So actually that was part of what we wanted to do. And you see that now with a This Girl Can campaign, you know, that can stimulate activity, but actually building that sort of movement and reinforcement and helping people encourage each other actually has as much a role as as anything else the, the idea of just building it and they will come doesn't necessarily work in its own right mm. so i was at sports england for about four four years in total so i've done a, a, almost a decade in public service i mean started off as a consultant and went into into public sector for about 10 years and rather randomly um a headhunter called me for a role they'd, they'd been interested in an international advertising agency called loan partners were looking to have someone from outside the sector come and join them to help them answer the age-old question in advertising i know half my advertising works but i don't know which half and that's something which they thought that sector had been grappling with for a while they wanted to build more of a a body of evidence for showcasing how their work did make a difference to the bottom line of their clients they didn't necessarily think they had that thinking within the sector so could someone from the outside come in and again work with creators that i'd done at the bbc and work with various stakeholders to help bring that sort of evidence-based thinking to to what they do. So having worked in the public sector for 10 years, I thought, yeah, why not actually? It'd be, be fun to change. It was also a genuinely international role. They had about 90 offices across 60 markets. I enjoyed working with creatives, so I thought it'd be quite fun. Was a lone sort of, what's it, a PC in the world of a MacBook. You know, it was that sort of, you know, angle, you know, very much a number cruncher amongst all the creatives there. But, but, but equally, they were very welcoming of someone who contrasted their experience and their skills. Soon discovered the world of advertising loves awards. So we started entering more and more awards and using our evidence around advertising effectiveness and use that as a sort of currency for showcasing our work and how the advertising we doing made a difference to our clients the agency loan partners biggest client was unilever they did about half of unilever's advertising so massive account so a lot of you know campaigns and evidence around you know has a work on personal push it up has a work on magnum's increase iTunes sales or Cornetto or whatever it might be. But also some really interesting public service campaigns as well. We did work for Alzheimer's, also work for the Stroke Association, trying to encourage people to spot the signs earlier of strokes. And we did an amazing campaign down in Colombia, which I'll, I'll bore your listeners with a little bit, which is where they have a civil war going on in Colombia. And uh, they were trying to do a campaign to encourage the members of FARC, the guerrilla group, to lay down their arms. And so we did a lot of advertising and campaigns in the midst of football matches. We realised that even guerrillas out in the jungles, they still watch and listen to radio and, and football coverage. And we also did a fascinating campaign called Operation Christmas, where we realised that in a, in a highly Catholic country, a very Christian country, Christmas does resonate, again, even with those who are at war for guerrillas out in the jungle. So took 12, I think, 
large trees out in the jungle areas, decorated them with Christmas lights, so that when the gorillas would go past, they would illuminate, and a little sign would say, remember your families, maybe think about giving up your arms. And we were able to track the impact of that with those who then, during December and January, actually did go back into, into civilization and, and lay down their arms and saw a spike in in, in activity and, and people uh, relinquishing the battle, which was great to see because obviously that makes a difference oh, in people's yeah. lives. And that won a number of Grand Prix and, and awards in, in the world of advertising. As you can imagine, it was it was something that resonated, you know, in, in a sector that's very much sell, sell, sell. That sort of public service and outcome-based campaign was, was fantastic. So that sort of stimulated a lot of interest in the network to do more of that sort of evidence base around the impact of our advertising. So it was quite a stint. My role broadened out to take on more of a consultancy role. We had an internal consultancy, so I started looking after that, doing more futurology, trying to show our clients where the you know where the world was going, but didn't miss the world of sport while I was there. So I had a, probably a seven-year itch after a while there and uh, looked to get back to sport. And uh, an old colleague of mine from Sport England got in touch with me about his role at World Rugby, who I've been familiar with. I knew they were the international Federation for Rugby Union, the equivalent of FIFA for football, but for, for Rugby Union. But I also knew they were based in Dublin. I thought, mm, living in West London, that could be a bit of a bit of a jump. But met with the guys, really liked them, and joined them in 2019. I had a year commuting out to Dublin to their headquarters, and then obviously COVID hit. And so have been based either here in, in West London at home, or we've now got a presence in, in London as, as, as well as we've expanded the organisation and head over to Dublin a fair bit as well. And again, a role there, which is a new role as their director of strategy to help them think more cohesively about the direction the sport's taking and how a sport and a sports organisation, which has obviously governance of the laws of the game, but also has one big iconic event, the Men's Rugby World Cup in particular, as well as the Women's World Cup and, and Seven Series as well, how we can make the most of those to really open up the game to to more and drive growth in the game as well. Mm. Wow. So it, an incredible span. And you're obviously a, a man in the know when it, when it comes to designing and, and implementing, achieving strategies and you you reference there the the breadth of of things you've worked on i think for, for me as a, as a rugby fan a huge rugby fan is it's going to be really really hard to to stay on topic and <laughs> not get your views on things like you know louis reesamer going to the nfl or world leagues in the future or six nation squads or anything yeah. like that but so i will try and stay on 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 topic and tap into the experience that that you've just gone through them here perhaps though slightly slightly to indulge me but also to explain to to, to listeners and so that they can understand what it is you do day to day now with world rugby you could give us um just a short overview if you like of 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 the current world rugby strategy of what it is you're you're working on i know there are several key pillars there's there's a number of things you're looking to implement but could you just give us an overview of that sure absolutely and and uh, we did a strategy review in 2021 which we may talk about sort of process for that and how that came about at a later date. But in terms of the overall strategy, I think what came out of that process was a really clear vision to try and grow the sport globally. So it's an interesting sport. And, and I raised this at interview, I, my, my interview with the chair Bill Beaumont, then chief exec Brett Gosper and, and Alan Gilbin, who's the current chief exec. You know, I, I explained that I'm not from a rugby background. And I would guess that of the 120 or so staff at World Rugby at the time, 110 probably are rugby fans, much like yourself, Sam. But I would represent the other 7.9 billion people out there who aren't and who don't know much about sport. And that's the truth of the sport. It is, it is big in some small markets. It's big in Wales, it's big in New Zealand, big in Scotland and Ireland. But it's, you know, unlike cricket, it doesn't have an India. Unlike, say, basketball, it doesn't have a China or an America. It's uh, a sport where we have 132 
member bodies, but I'd say only about 10 of them are at the, at the top end, sort of self-sustaining commercially. There's a quite a long tail of those who need to be supported and, and, and help grow the game. So very much when we did the trash review, we talked about how we might grow the game, but not in a sort of colonial fashion, but more in a time in, in sense of it's a sport that if you can spread the word around it, that's great, but also needs to grow to take it away from just over-dependence on a couple of markets. 70% of the sport's revenues come from either the UK or France. So they're not wow. insignificant markets, but they represent probably about 5% of global GDP, maybe 3% of global population. So they're not sufficient and they're quite saturated to some degree. So how do we take the sport into new markets and, and you know, that translates directly into what I'm doing a lot at the moment, which is trying to see how we can grow the game and, and take the World Cup to, to the US, for example, in the future. But in terms of then thinking about if that's our aim to grow the sport, and it's, you know, it's, it's a bit blase to talk about growth. So what do we mean there? To some people, I mean, it's commercial. To some people, I mean, it's um, participation. I think overall, we're talking about if we can stimulate audience interest and therefore that drives commercial and obviously participation as well that's what we really want to focus on um to do so what we have as an organization and we don't control rugby overall we are the international federation for rugby union but there are obviously other partners and bodies involved but what we do have are two big things first of all we have the laws of the game so we can make the game more interesting if possible but also you know true to its values but also we can make it more you know, relevant and accessible through the events that we control, particularly the Men's Rugby World Cup. So that's what we really feel that we can we can drive change and also build the Women's World Cup into a, a great global property, which will also drive demand and interest in the sport as well. So when we came to that process where we thought, okay, we want to grow the sport overall globally, take it into new markets. We want to do that by having a purpose, which is make it as relevant and accessible as possible. Then what that translates into is probably you know, five core pillars, three of which are outward facing around driving interest through competitions, the ones we run, but also working more harmoniously with the other competitions out there. And last year, a big project was looking at how we might harmonize the club calendar and the uh, international calendars to try and make them more uh, synchronized so that uh, they can work together better. And a great outcome in October was uh, the announcements of this concept of the Nations uh, League or Nations Cup being developed so that the current tour windows in July and November could become part of a more formal competition, which will hopefully bring more jeopardy and also more uh, competitive interest into the sport as well. Um, we also have a focus and a pillar on participation. Any federation national international has to have participation really as an indication of the health of the sport most sports it's an interesting one most sports participation is is a cost line you know it's not something that drives revenue and that's probably the same in rugby overall and it's challenging with it being a a, a team game a contact game a game 15 aside knees cross pitches those are things which if you're designing a sport you know for 2024 you may be thinking is that it's up what's going to work when you talk about people want to go for a jog or for a swim or whatever it might be. So um, there are some challenges there, uh, but that's, you know, 100 and odd people out of Dublin, another 100 out of London won't change that, but working with our member unions can make a massive difference. And so, for example, this evening, I'm off for dinner with um, members of the community board at the RFU to talk to them about some of the learnings from other markets and what we can try and do here in England and how they can they can drive change there as well. Our third pillar is around audience engagement and, and engagement with our stakeholders as well. That's really crucial. And thinking about it in in not just about traditional platforms and, and free-to-air television, but also obviously where our consumers and would-be consumers are increasingly in terms of the platforms we talk about now, which have obviously gone through Facebook and Snapchat and Twitter or X now, through to a higher presence on TikTok and other platforms where we know we can package the content and stimulate more interest and engage audiences. Again, to help 
in some cases, encourage them to take part, but equally important to become fans of the sport and therefore generate future interests and future revenues as well. And underpinning those three sort of outward-facing pillars are the game itself, which is our product. You know, how do we make that as attractive as possible? And it's it's a really challenging one because there's obviously with it being a contact sport in the main, we want to make sure that there are no unintended consequences of any of the changes one might make. You want to make it as safe as possible for participants and fans and audiences, but also as exciting and lively as possible as well. And that sort of continuous tension, continuous challenge and continuous improvement journey. And then our last pillar really is, is a bit inward looking, which is about our ways of working. And how do we work in a way that is genuinely thinking about, you know, less of being a, maybe a traditional international federation, but really thinking about consumers in the future and, and how we engage with them more and more. And part of what we've done as, as that is really think about also how we stage our uh, major events, because they are our main contact point with audiences. And historically, we have tended to award, say, the last Men's Rugby World Cup was awarded to France. They set up a company, they ran that, they sold the tickets, they engaged with the consumers and the fans. We would do some of the deals, uh, sponsorship and uh, and, the, and some of the merchandising, etc. But going forwards, what we're looking to do more and more is is because the contact with your consumer and your fan is so important, is to, is to have more both risk around that because we're going to take on responsibility for that, but also hopefully more reward in the long term to be able to build those long-term relationships with our fans so that we can both provide value for them, for them, but also, you know, have value coming back into the sport from them as well. So that's where our strategy sort of got to. It's a 21 to 25 strategy. So at some point towards the end of this year, we'll have a look at it. And I think those structure, that structure of the pillars, I think will stay to some degree intact, but what we do under each of those pillars will evolve obviously into the next five years as, as we evolve as well. Mm. It's very fascinating. It's fascinating for me as well to, to look at a, a sport in that way and in a, in a completely different way. You referenced a couple of the pillars there, which, which maybe I'll come on to. I've, I've read some of the strategy report and there are some things that, that really stuck out um, to me. And I'll, I'll come to ask you about those, particularly around stakeholders and, and sure. pr- promoting that um, sport. But we at White and Black, and we were just chatting um, offline here, are primarily are, are, and even before lawyers, really are, are business people. Sure. And we, we work with other business people. Many people listening will be involved in, in management and ownership of businesses. So I wanted to just draw a couple of parallels in, in the time we have and talk about what businesses really can learn from an organization, a governing body like world rugby and from you in charge of of the strategy within that so i thought to talk sort of strategic planning and stakeholder engagement firstly world rugby has a a vast number of stakeholders you referenced there i think 132 member countries i was also reading like 500 million fans 8 million players japan 2019 world cup had something like 850 million viewers you've got broadcasters volunteers corporate partners all of the you know, the RFU, all the other, other governing bodies as well. So huge, huge organization that is working to manage the product of rugby, like you said. And we'll come on to more about those stakeholders. But when it comes to to building a strategy for, for a whole sport, a product like rugby, which involves so many stakeholders in in so many forms of, of the game, where where on earth and how do you do you start when you come in when you join world rugby maybe you could talk a little about that how how you build that and how you begin to implement that because that is a huge task sure no it's a fascinating exercise and and it was i think in this case doubly fascinating because the strategy review was conducted in 2020 second half of 2020 during covid 
So yeah. there was very little opportunity for face-to-face engagement, which had both pluses and minuses, by the way. It meant that, you know, you could do face-to-face like this over Zoom much more easily. People more adept to that and actually connect with people, not necessarily en masse, but, you know, do more, more sort of face-to-face stuff in that sort of way. I, I think it's interesting. I've gone for a similar sort of experience when I was at Sport England, which um, is a funding body that has primarily has relationships with 365 um, local authorities and 46 national governing bodies and also other government departments and, and other stakeholders, the NHS, Department of Health, etc. And um, what I think is really important, both in that sense, but also what we did at World Rugby, was really think about, you know, we could be very grandiose and as at Sporting, want to try and do a strategy for sport overall. And same at World Rugby, could be a strategy for rugby overall. I think it's more the realisation that being very clear, what, what is a strategy after all? It's very, it's trying to be as clear and articulate as it can be about what one is trying to achieve and how, but also what one isn't as well. And so, both at Sporting and at World Rugby, I think we came to the realization we need to focus very much on what, in this case, World Rugby's role could be and where it could deliver success and strength and lead by example, not necessarily try and dictate to all 132 member unions and et cetera, et cetera, what they ought to be doing and, and more set, set a North Star for them to follow. So, we are a membership body at heart, so therefore, not quite a trade union, but we are, you know, who's the name, rugby union, so we are a union of all of those different unions, national federations. We also have six regions as well, and there are also multiple competitions which are very successful in their own right, the Sanzard Rugby Championship competition in the Southern Hemisphere, Six Nations over in, in the Northern Hemisphere. So we needed to work very closely to understand what our role was with respect to all of those partners, and also how we could have some clear water and you know, give a sense of direction. So inevitably involved a lot of, lot of consultation and it worked in a couple of ways. So, and a couple of phases. So first of all, it was absolutely on what is the scope and, you know, as a former consultant, one of the things you want to do is always as far as possible, be, you know, clear on your brief and it never really is full clarity, but as clear as possible on what you're trying to achieve and when by. Then it's, you know, trying to agree, as I say, the sort of time frame for that as well and what, what the sort of content should look like. Then we did some bottom-up consultation and number of surveys on, you know, what's in scope and what isn't. What do, you know, when we talk about trying to grow the sport, what does it mean to different, you know, stakeholders? So, for example, our executive committee, which is a subset of the, the unions and our independents, our effectively our board, they're very focused that growth for them meant commercial success. Whereas for unions, in many senses, and the small unions, it meant participation success or maybe audience success. So there are some variations there which we need to, need to pull together. So we did a lot of survey and, and bottom-up evidence base around that to get a feeling of where the sentiment was. We also, for example, can rule things out. There wasn't an appetite to revisit the values of the sport. The sport feels very strongly about its values. And they did a big exercise on it probably seven or eight years earlier. Did they want to revisit it? And they all felt, no, actually, they stand in good stead. I think there is a genuine challenge of, if you look from outside the sport, do they still stand in good stead? Because that's, you know, that's important to do. And so maybe next time we'll look at that in more detail. But for this time, we part that our scope. And then on top of that, then to make things feel more concrete, you can do a lot of, as I say, not airy-fairy, but a lot of sort of qualitative sounding out of people. But I found the easiest way to get people to, you know, either commit or say what they don't like is just to run things by them. So on the basis of the sort of feedback we were getting, I was able to articulate those five pillars, which I walked through earlier and what might sit under them, and then just draw that into a couple of slides to then walk through with people, walk through with our board, our management team, and just get each reaction to it and refine it rather than just go to people with a blank sheet of paper, because that's really difficult for people to engage with. 
So to go with something that you might disagree with is easier, easier in a way, and easier obviously to get feedback as well. And then out of that came some refinement, and then a process by which we had a final consultation on a full, you know, forty-page strategy doc, which went out to our members and our, our council, so a subset of our overall members, and then ultimately our council approved that strategy for a vote. It was quite a perilous sort of Zoom vote with forty people on the screen all doing their vote to to go yay or nay based on the recommendation of our executive board. That was at the end of 2020, and then it was implemented in 21. And that's when the hard work starts, you know, because yeah. we've all seen strategy docs and we've all done them where they just sit on the shelf behind me or wherever, or on someone's PowerPoint deck. And the hard work is actually then in implementation saying, what's going to happen next? And the sort of things that matter are therefore, where does the money go? You know, is it changing direction? Is it going to certain things that it might not have done before? And also communicating this sort of framework for how we want to think about all the activity we're doing and what we're trying to achieve and a bit of a roadshow around that as well. So that's the sort of stuff that then started immediately after to make things come to life a bit. Mm. And that, just to come back on that, that refinement stage is, is that quite difficult to manage? Because presumably you've, you've got to have the strategy with your, with your key pillars that you want to implement front and center, but you've got to have enough leeway actually to allow for that feedback and to allow people to sort of throw stones as it were, and to say, mm, don't agree with that, but you, ha you still have to, to take it forward and you, you can't have 10 opinions from everyone in the room. If, you, if you're asking, you know, 50 different people, because then where, where do you end up? So how, how do you sort of strike that balance between pushing it forward and keeping it front and center, but listening enough and getting, getting people on board and maybe tweaking it where, yeah. where you can. That's hard to do, isn't it? It is hard to do. Although I think what, what learning is from this process and others is that the first stage of that is just giving the appearance and the genuine appearance that you are listening. And actually people just want that. And I think people are, you know, they're all wise and wise enough to know that you can't please all the people all the time. And therefore they may disagree with some points, but they understand that others We'll have a counter position and my job is to try and navigate that and they they're, they're all cognizant of that and I, I think as long as they're having the chance to air their views and have them you know strongly articulated and evidenced and then played into the process and feel it's given a fair hearing i think they're fine i think that's absolutely fine and i think in terms of the feedback we got actually in the end on this it was it was more it, it, it was more unified than one might hope. So the, the, the sort of pillars were all quite agreed, even the content of them. I think there, it was actually very helpful feedback to say it would be really useful to have, you know, really explicit targets in some areas, for example, which was good. And then the other, other bit of feedback we got is, you know, is it a strategy that really can look 10 years ahead or is it more like a five, seven years or three to five? You know, how does that work? Because some of it felt quite immediate action driven and therefore, is it really looking that far ahead? So those two bits of feedback I thought were quite helpful and actually they played into how we then ended up with a final formulation. There was, there was fortunately not so much that it was like, no, you need to go after Africa or no, you need to go after Asia. It was, it was kind of realizing that, you know, there's a balance to be struck for a global organization. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Really, really interesting. I guess my, my follow up on that then, and the next stage in the process, as it were, is, is around those stakeholders that you mentioned earlier and, and, or, or beyond at least internally world rugby and as a slight aside, but relevant to this conversation, I think there was, there was an impact study that was out um, just last week, which I picked up 
from the Institute of Real Growth, which is linked to uh, the site Business School here in Oxford. Okay. They were they were looking at stakeholder engagement and they found that I think it was 64% of overperforming over organizations ground themselves by actively engaging with their stakeholders. And that's compared to just 9% of underperforming organizations. Yeah. And they went on and said 90% of overperforming organizations approach stakeholder value creation as a business growth opportunity and compared to just 50% of underperforming so stakeholder engagement is clearly at least in this study but i think the general yep. consensus has been for a while pretty well linked to success and to performance within organizations and i guess a similar question to strategy where where do we start with it though so for, for you at world rugby do you come in and have already have quite a good map of those stakeholders is that a, a fresh exercise that you do you come in and you map those stakeholders out are they are they a consideration really early on in the strategy planning? And maybe that's a separate question after after answering how you sort of go about mapping stakeholders. At what point do they come into the thinking within the strategy? Do they feature a bit later on? But maybe you could talk to us about how you how you sort of map sure. out those stakeholders. And the, you know, the results you describe there from the side business school kind of make common sense. If you're any sort of business, and that includes us, whether you're a membership business or your business that is selling widgets to consumers or, you know, an airport that's dealing with airlines, whatever it might be, you need to get on well and understand what your either clients or your stakeholders, what you want to call them, uh, need and want. And we're, we're no different in that sense. And I, I guess I focus particularly on our stakeholders being our members. That's one, that's, that's one pool of them, but there are other stakeholders, which are you as a fan, and then there's others who are participants. And then there's our other, you know, as our broadcast and our commercial partners, they're all stakeholders. And we do certainly within our strategy review, as well as a focus on a membership, we hand them involved as well. And, and, and engage them as well and, and, and do on a regular basis. But I think what we did do, one of the commitments we made in the last strategy review was actually to improve how we engage with our core stakeholders of the members. And so, for example, one of the things which we've committed to introduce and we've now done one, two, three times since is an annual stakeholder survey, a state of the union survey. Just literally, we, we, I'm just hoping to get results from the 2023 version in this week. But to understand, first of all, are they having regular contact with us? Are we able to resolve their problems? Are they, you know, which bits of our communication do they find helpful or not? Those sort of things. And then we test out, you know, particular things each year. So for example, at the moment, we, we're testing out with our stakeholders. Do they need more support on on something we think is important, which is sustainability? Last year, we did it in the survey, we asked them what sort of services they might want centrally from World Rugby that would help them more proactively. So that's the sort of stuff which um, we're always world testing and, and trying to learn more about. Um, so there's no question that for us to be successful, those stakeholders, in particular our members, have to be successful. But there is a big spread, you know. So there are some who are more, you know, they stand on their own two feet, they're more independent. The Rugby Football Union in this country, New Zealand Rugby Football Union, they're successful businesses in their own right. It would be wrong of World Rugby to be lecturing them on what to do, but absolutely we can help work in partnership with them better. That's always the case. Whereas at other unions, associate members who are smaller enterprises, where we are maybe 20, 30, 40, 50, up to 90% of their funding, and therefore need to work in partnership with them to understand where that funding has the most impact and how we help drive, drive their outcomes that they want to achieve, which are in line with our strategy of growing the game overall. So I think there's, yeah, it, it's, it's without question, you know, whether you're a conventional business or for us, that sort of membership type business, understanding your stakeholders in the wider sense is is is, is mission critical. Mm. Yeah, and I guess you've only got to look at where that 
where there's been a misalignment there and, and stakeholders haven't been uh, either understood or actively engaged within sport you look at things like live golf or yep. you know you had the planned European Super League, Super League in football yep. huge fallout dam- and, and lasting damaging fallout and that's that's a great example of where where it's fallen down but perhaps I, the, I don't want to say the most important bit but the most challenging bit considering those stakeholders great engaging them in that process but once once engaged actually moving a change forward or actually moving the the elements of a of a strategy forward you know the, the strategy can be as thoughtful as anything completely watertight original but presumably if stakeholders are not on board and understanding of changes and their role in in those the whole thing can be slightly futile because that's where it's going to play out that's where it's going to move forward so how do you then go about actually engaging the stakeholders in the change and taking that change forward both as world rugby but in ensuring that they are they're equipped and and informed to the point where they can they can move that change forward and the strategy comes together sure so i can give a live example of that so part of the strategy was very much around trying to grow the game globally we went back to our stakeholders including the council who are the ultimate awarding body for awarding future rugby world cups in 2022 to say as part of that part of what we're looking to do in terms of taking the game to new parts of the world and growing the game we wanted to unveil a slate of upcoming rugby world cups so 25 out to 33 to have the 25 world cup awarded to england 27 and 29 to australia and 31 and 33 to to the usa two main aspects of change in that which we needed to, and we walked through our stakeholders be their commercial partners be their those member unions and particularly the subset who are on our council to explain the two main drivers of change and two main aspects of that one is that we are proposing to take more of an active role in running those world cups so rather than just award a world cup to england or to the australia and in particular to the us it would be more world rugby running a World Cup in partnership with that member union. And the main reason being that, therefore, when you go from one place to another, you can have, obviously, economies in scale in taking a ship from one place to another, in this case, a you know, major world event. But also, the increasing prioritization of that relationship with a fan and, you know, be it the ticket holder or the or, or the fan watching in the stands or the, or the one at home or in a, in a fan zone, that's important to have from event to event. And if we just award them and then just move on, that's not necessarily building that sort of cohesion over time. So that's what we played back to. And we, we solve that that's going to help generate more income from sport overall, more information for you all as members, because you'll be able to tap into this base of, you know, 2.3 million people attended the last Rugby World Cup in France to know who they are and be able to target them day in, day out, either with additional services or products or tickets for 25, 27, whatever it might be, is obviously beneficial. So that's number one. And number two was also this idea of taking World Cups beyond the conventional places they've been in the past. So Japan 2019 broke the ice on that. It was It's a country where the sport's successful. It's been there for 100 odd years, but it was the first one out of the conventions of Southern Hemisphere, um, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, or England and France. So it's the first one out of that. And so therefore, um, the idea of then taking a, a World Cup to the US 
was absolutely in line with our strategic thinking of opening up a new market or using the World Cup, the major event we host, to the benefit of all. So we hope it will be successful in its own right. People go and enjoy it. They'll buy tickets, hopefully very expensive tickets, as well as the more affordable ones, and return a, a, an income to World Rugby, which then can be passed through in grants to our, our member unions. But also it would allow for Six Nations or Sanzar to have a new market to sell TV rights to, et cetera, et cetera, or to take matches to, whatever it might be that they see as successful. So it's, it's, it's a boon, hopefully, for the game overall. So that's the other thing we need to play out part of a strategic plan was we've all agreed when we signed off a strategic plan, it was a unanimous vote from our council. 51 members of them all voted for approve it was to try and grow the game. Now we're asking you to approve the implementation of that, which is inevitably we need to take the, you know, the main product, we had a World Cup to new markets. Same on the seven series, which we've just gone through a, a reinvention, you know, there's a stop, but the final stop, the, the finale of the new seven series will be in Madrid next year in sorry, later this year in, in May, June time. And that's a market where, you know, Spain haven't been necessarily successful at World Cups, but they are really a great union and a, a great sports market generally. So the idea of having a, you know, a finale and a great event at the, at the Athletic Madrid stadium there this summer will be a fantastic sort of, again, beacon and North Star for the sport in the seven series as well. So that sort of thinking is we, we play it back into the strategic plan, which everyone has signed up to, and it has these now consequences, but you know, they're not always thought of at the time. So we need to make sure that those colleagues in other organizations who we're affiliated with are brought on that training with us. Mm. Yeah, really, really fascinating. And it must be, it must be quite nice in a way for, to see, I mean, you, re you referenced Madrid and the Spanish union there, but to see teams like Portugal and, and Georgia doing so well at previous World Cups, it, it sort of affirms part of that approach and part of that strategy and, and, and where you're looking to, to grow and push out and engage those unions in, in driving that forward. There's, there's a, a couple of segues in there that you obviously referenced earlier the the pillar of participation and, and audience growth and and then how you move that forward maybe moving on slightly to that i was i was interested in the strategy report about the idea that there's this this market saturation for many leading sports at the moment and and a feeling that sports rights were or, or potentially reaching a sort of value ceiling covid19 in many ways accelerated those shifts you cite things in the report like the rise of, of esports sort of filling the vacuum that was left as, as traditional sports had that hiatus and that's sort of continuing you've got strike you know the, those that are striking rights deals now are struggling to retain previous levels sponsors are, are exerting even more scrutiny on roi um broadcast broadcasting partners and traditional broadcasting with within with sort of Prime and Netflix and direct to consumer coming in as well. There's loads and loads to contend with there. So in terms of branding and, and, and promotion of of the product, as you you called it, the, the sport as a whole, and in light of these factors, the, the, the fact that they've you know it, it, it makes it makes up a key element and objective of your strategy. How do you look to to improve that that promotion and that marketing? of rugby to to grow the game as it were um it's a massive question granted so, so maybe it will be the, the start of an answer and i know you've you've referenced a couple of things already but but where do you start with that is, is it a case of selling rugby against different sports is it the physical benefits the community benefits there's, there's so many elements to me how do you how would you do it it's, it's it's a fascinating one and it's it's as you can imagine it's one that preoccupies us a lot and the, the it goes back to what sort of outcome you're trying to achieve. And you, you've, you've highlighted a couple there. So 
we have a participation outcome. They're selling a sport in a participation sense, and that's not to say that's binary or polar opposite, but there's a different thing in terms of selling a sport for audience awareness or, or building fandom. There, there's some overlap, but there's some distinctions. So I think what we are, we are acutely conscious of, we've done a lot of further research into this, and we also know our member unions, the more successful ones, also do a lot of research into their fan base and their participation base and try and understand what motivates and what doesn't. We've done a lot of research trying to understand it. So if I, if I carve it into, into a couple of different areas, and in essence, it goes back to almost, almost old-fashioned market segmentation. So if you're talking about it from an audience point of view or from a fan point of view, we know there are, both globally but in specific markets, there are avids who are really into the sport, and you may think you're you're one of them they're the ones who will tune into club games they're the ones who'll go and buy tickets they're the ones who buy merchandise that's in, in you know they exist obviously in every sport then what we also have is then a hinterland of a more casual fan those who like myself might tune in for a world cup or a six nations match and then you've got those who have a passing interest in the sport from an audience point of view and all the time we're trying to look at how we can move people both into the top of that funnel into that sort of broad awareness of a sport and broad awareness of, of the products within it and the, and the content and the, and the matches or whatever it might be, and then move them down the funnel as much as possible. And that's what a lot of the investment we have made internally and also with our partners over the last, I'd say, four or five years in particular, has been on, on identifying the channels that work that way, the platforms, particularly, you know, again, thinking not just about those three buckets of Avids, casuals, and those with broad awareness, but also the age groups and demographics within them as well. So some, you know, some really more sophisticated segmentation there going on as well. And that's how we then build audience interest. Some of that will trickle into those people being fans and watching the content or listening to it or following it online. Some of them will go obviously into hopefully taking part in sport as well. In terms of participation, though, it is it is it is a different challenge. And I and and I have consistently felt that. And this is going back to my time at Sporting, that we are not necessarily competing with other sports, but we are competing for attention. We are competing for people's time. And that is a real challenge. And that could be, in some cases, another sport. It could be just being on their phone, doing something else. That's a real challenge for us. And and rugby does have have a, have a challenge in terms of what we are seeing globally is declines in team sports. There's no doubt that the coverage of a concussion issue in the sport has an impact on, on people's willingness to either take part themselves or have their children or or offspring or, or friends say passing it as well and there's also the sheer coordination issue and spontaneity so much of what people want to do now is spontaneous that to be able to round up 30 people and a referee and a pitch you know mm. for the end of the day if you want to do that is not not straightforward the corollary of that is that at the same time and there's a great place of literature by robert putnam called bowling alone is that people do recognize the massive value of taking part in t-sports and taking part in activities and bring people together and people are searching for that and what's great about rugby and particularly 15s is it's all shapes and sizes and therefore one can you know take part in it and and that's 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 how we try and sell the sport it is something for everyone whereas sevens is another sales pitch because they're phenomenal athletes phenomenal high-paced skill and that's great for audiences in particular probably less slightly less so on the participation side so again on the participation and audience building we're always segmenting always trying to target very specifically to be as sophisticated and using our limited resources as as effectively as you can be but i'd say overall although if you go market by market people will always look at how other sports are doing and i think that's useful because it gives you a benchmark i don't necessarily see always other sports as a competitor someone might do you know 
I do swimming as well as doing rugby. There's no, you know, it's not necessarily a binary choice. Yes, people have choices over their time, but actually, sporty people tend to do a lot of sport. And certainly, you, you know, most kids at school, they might do multiple sports and might narrow down over time. I think the other thing we're also conscious of is how do we keep people engaged in the sport? So, I mentioned earlier, a lot of people come into the sport through their family connection or their friends. They then will move through life, you know, and we see generally in sport drop offs at 16 when people move out of education or 18 when they leave school or 21 when they might go into higher education and leave again, or they might start work, you know, other competitive issues come into, into play. How do we help people stay in the sport? So for example, recently we've launched a new product called team one rugby, which is an alternative to pure touch or tag rugby, but also to contact, which allows you to have much of the values and, and excitement of, of, of contact rugby, but in a non-contact fashion. And that's something we're working with our union. See, that's what something that can play well into that space to help people continue playing because we do see, you know, a drop off in time, but then obviously a resurgence of people who might want to play touch as they get older uh, and come back into the sport. So we're, we're offering them more and more opportunities to do that as well. Mm. So there's real um, segmentation there. I'm, I'm interested in the the sort of the split, but also the connections between that that audience growth and that participation growth. So d- is there is there a direct feed through that? is I, I don't know if it's trackable but it you know people who who come to the sport say through through watching rather than rather than through a family connection as you reference perhaps perhaps people who come to it through seeing it online on you know short clips social media or maybe watching some of the world cup and actually connecting that then to a participation graphic i you, you can't you can't put all your eggs in that basket in terms of growing participation but it but is that is that the string to the bow as it were in in terms of engaging people at that stage and and bringing them through to participation or are they two separate tracks i i it's i've looked at this over probably 20 years off and on this issue mm-hmm. so when i was back at bbc sports and i think it was one of the olympics there we had 6.3 million people tune in for curling at midnight <laughs> did we see did we because of the British team won a gold, I guess. But do we see suddenly a surge of interest in in curling straight after that? No, or a sustained surge? No. But did we have a spike in interest and awareness as well? Absolutely. So, and I've worn different hats in this. So when I was at the BBC, I wanted to show that relationship because I felt it was something, obviously, a value that the BBC could bring by showcasing sport. When I was at Sport England, I was looking at it from the point of view, should we be working more closely in partnership with broadcasters of those who drive attention to sport? And, and at World Rugby, we have a bit of, yeah, we have a foot in each camp as such. My, my, I mean, there's evidence in all sorts of ways here and, and, and it, it is very, it is very mixed. My overall take on it is, you know, and there, there are absolutely those who would argue you can't be, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And I, and I, I do understand that. And there's also evidence that, you know, those sports which may have moved off terrestrial TV, has that had an impact on participation as well? I would say overall, the research I've seen broadly says a couple of things. First of all, it says that the major impact on people taking part in sport is and I said this earlier, is the environment they're in. So it's the friends they're with and it's their family background. And and that has the number one impact. And you see that in terms of what sporting is trying to do. It's trying to have an impact on that by encouraging parents and others to encourage their kids to take part in sport. That's, you know, that's going to have probably the, the biggest impact. Having said that, what I do think makes a difference is in terms of that sort of broadcasting encouragement of sport and the elite success is, is a couple of things. And we saw this with the Euro 22 euros in in england last year is that they can have an impact on people 
going through to elite success. So you have a, a virtuous circle of that. And, and you know, Seb Coe is a great example of this. He argues very hardly that, you know, strongly that he, part of his success is by watching his predecessors do well and that stimulates success. But I think also it has an impact on those already in the sport continuing on the pathway more generally. So not just on the pathway to elite success. So I think the interest that's no doubt grown in women's rugby with women's, you know, here in England with the women's World Cup finalists and the Red Roses reaching that final last year, or in football with the Euros Championship winning women's team, the Lionesses, or then reaching the final of the World Cup this year. That's had an impact on in awareness of women's football, but also those girls, young women and women taking part in the sport, continuing to have interest in the sport and sustained success and staying in the sport. I think that's where it really has an impact. So it's a, I'm giving quite a, probably an overly detailed and nuanced answer, but I think it is a very nuanced situation. I don't think it's as easy as saying, if it's on terrestrial TV, if it's splashed all over TV or the news, therefore it translates into participation success. I think you need to have a lot of other conditions alongside it. And the, the ultimate example is the Wimbledon the tennis. Tennis courts get really busy, those two mm -hmm. weeks, mm -hmm. and then generally participation drops off again afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it is a nuanced um, thing, but I suppose it's it, it demonstrates the importance of the strategy that you have and the, the joined up thinking throughout yeah, the whole governing body and the engagement of of all stakeholders at that stage, because that that's ultimately what's going to carry things through. And uh, yeah, it's 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 fascinating. And I, I, without going into more detail, but I wonder if with rugby as well, there's there's a unique. The, particularly with the with the contact element there is a perhaps a, a shorter uh career span in that at least in that form you can obviously move on to touch and sevens and other forms but but perhaps it works the other way as well perhaps you have a, a participation to a point and then when participation is is maybe no longer possible for whatever reason the, the you move across to, to the audience side and i know that's you know that's true of, of, of water volunteering or refereeing or exactly, yeah, exactly. Other, exactly. other aspects of it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so it, it, it does work work across both um it's been it's been so interesting talking to you i'm, I'm conscious of of your time so i, I don't want to go on much longer but just as as a sort of wrap up obviously we had we had the world cup um at the back end of last year a huge success i mean the, the quality of of some of the games on display and, and not just as a rugby fan but I think for, for neutrals tuning in particularly to some of those those quarterfinals just an incredible showcase for the sport there's there's more exciting things coming on, on the horizon though for, for you at World Rugby and for rugby as a sport there's there's Six Nations there's the World Rugby League is it is it a busy time coming up? Is is there? It's always a busy time. Too? Absolutely, and immediately, it's not one of our competition, but Six Nations will capture attention, and there's sure. there's always heightened interest in the Six Nations immediately after a World Cup, and also immediately before. So that should be good. We also have recently relaunched the Seven Series as a, as a World Tour with eight stops, and so we have the next one in Perth coming up, and that will run into the finale in Madrid later on in the summer, and then we're all systems go with the next big big thing for us which is hopefully a groundbreaking women's world cup in england in 2025 the opening match will be selling out hopefully sunderland and then over the period of several weeks our fans and the players will make their way down to hopefully sell out hookingham for the for the final and we are really putting a lot of store into that as a way of transforming not just the women's game at the top end in in, in england and, and hopefully having a global impact as well also obviously that 
as we just discussed, the potential for that to stimulate interest in the game overall and, and amongst girls and, and, and young women who want to play the game, but also just bringing a new audience in. And that's what we've already seen. So, you know, men love watching women's rugby as well, um, but we're increasingly seeing new audience come into the sport as we did with with football with the Euros uh, last year, which uh, is a more family-friendly and more, a more, more diverse audience than we may have had traditionally in in even, for example, in that case, men's football, in our case, men's rugby. Mm. And is that part of the, the geographic um, shift? Does that come into that? Because I know, I know France did that. I don't know if it's for the for the same reason in, in terms of audience growth, but they they moved around and they moved the national team around to different venues. That that feeds into it. Does it moving, say, from Sunderland down to... Down yeah, to we, we've, chosen ve- we've chosen venues around the country, not just in traditional heartlands, of, of the sport. That's something which UK sport, the British government, the RFU really wanted, which I understand. Part of the legacy of it is to try and take the sport into parts it hasn't necessarily penetrated as deeply as it might have done elsewhere um, previously. We're absolutely supportive of that, um, so that's, that's part of it as well. We know rugby is strong in the southeast and southwest of the country. Let's get yeah, rugby union, let's try and, you know, friends and family and, and, and Brits and others enjoy it in other parts of the country as well. Yeah, amazing. Well, so much to look forward to. And here it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much. 